Father in heaven, thank you for this privilege to come into your presence in prayer. Thank you for the beautiful location here in Loma Linda and for the people who are present. I just pray that you would bless us with your presence, with your peace, and that you would help us to see the word of God, the plans for your church, more clearly than we ever have, and that you would heal any wounds that have been caused by bad religion this evening. And I ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good news tonight, I promise. I won't be complaining. I won't be railing or ranting. Uh, This message is based on a series that I usually do as week of prayers uh, at academies or churches or wherever. And it's called, What If It's Better? What if God and religion were infinitely better than we imagined? And so we're just going to deal with three components of that. There's many more things I could or would share, uh, but that's just what was my burden for this particular weekend, the first weekend of school, right? Um, And I forget California is later than most places. So um, yeah, I just want to kind of set the school year right to kind of get us all on the right footing on healthy pictures of God and to be excited to serve Him. So again, bad religion. Um, What is bad religion? Some examples would be the Holy Wars, uh, the Dark Ages, Televangelists, this is a little bit before our generation, but they still exist um, to some degree. Uh, rich megachurch pastors, right? Some people have negative views of God because people are fleecing the flock, right, with their prosperity gospel and so forth. Um, judgmental Christians, I'm sure none of you have ever contended with any of those, but just in case, uh, I added them to the list. Being pistol whipped with the spirit of prophecy or with scripture, I'm sure you haven't dealt with that either. I sure hope so. Uh, because both of those have been a tremendous blessing to me in my experience, etc. Okay, so I remember hearing someone share a couple years ago, and they were telling about a story when they were preaching to a group of young people. And they asked a question of these young people. They said, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word Sabbath? And one young person raises their hand and say, this is what they said. In response to the question, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word Sabbath? And they said, sit down, shut up, and color. Because that's what their parents told them every Sabbath, was to sit down, shut up, and color. Obviously, there's not a positive word association with this young person and Sabbath. And many of our young people are wrestling this way. I've been all over North America, like to 22 academies, and a lot of our young people are wrestling with unhealthy pictures of God, not because of who God is, but because of who he's portrayed to be by people who claim to know him. You understand the difference? And that's what we're going to cover this evening. Uh, So God's ideal plan, what God wanted for the nation of Israel was for them to be the evangelists to reach the world through their teachings, through their example. This is what God wanted for them. And in Ezekiel 36, God kind of has a bit of a quandary here. I call it God's missional quandary. In Ezekiel 36, beginning of verse 22, he says, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And then he says, and I will sanctify my name, which has been profaned among the nations wherever you went. And then he says, how? He says, I'm going to cause them, um, he says that they're going to see pictures of you, pictures of me in you, basically. Um, Turn to Ezekiel 36, go to verse 24, because we're actually going to walk through the rest of this. And I've been in the sun all day and my brain isn't working as well as I would want. Ezekiel 36, beginning of verse 23 He says, and I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. So when the people of God look like Jesus, the surrounding nations are going to realize, man, these people got it together. 
I want what they have. I'm interested. The problem is the Israelites did not give that example. The surrounding nations wanted nothing to do with God because of the people of God. Can you see how this would be a problem for God? The very people he hired to bring people to Jesus are pushing people away from Jesus with their example. That's not helpful, right? So this is the experience that God went through. Now, the way that God plans on restoring this bad situation, he begins to unfold that he's going to transform the lives of the bad messengers to make them into good messengers, to convert them, to give them the power of the Holy Spirit to live a righteous life, to be a good example. They have stony hearts, he says, I'll remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. This is very, very good news. Very good news. But that's the only hope we'll have of the world seeing that Jesus is the guy, is that the people of God look like him. Does that make sense? This is what God wants. It's what he always intended. But the Israelites weren't the best of examples in that regard. Now, the question is, is it possible then? Well, let me phrase it this way. Based upon my reading of Ezekiel 36, I'm left with the impression that God has a problem with bad religion. Like, just from the outset. How many people in this room have a problem with bad religion? Anybody here? God does too, according to Ezekiel 36, and this is very good news for you guys, because God does not endorse people acting mean, acting arrogant, and so forth in the name of God. He doesn't endorse that. It's frustrating to him. It limits the missional objective he had for Israel. So that should be encouraging to us just from the get-go. He's not about that. He doesn't roll that way, okay? That's the first thing. But the next question is, is it possible for redemption for bad religion? Can that crusty elder in my church really change his behavior? Can he really be someone who's inviting, who doesn't say nasty things against people who smell like cigarette smoke, who are visitors in my church, or who are always getting onto the young people about this or about that? Is it possible for something to change with individuals who are just in the midst of bad religion? Yes. And amen. I'll give you a perfect example. How many people have heard of a guy named Saul of Tarsus? You ever heard of Saul of Tarsus? Yeah, was he a good boy or a bad boy? Bad boy, right? He was bad religion to the nth degree, right? He was vehemently pursuing people who believed in Jesus to arrest them, to imprison them, and to eventually have them killed because they didn't believe in God in the way that he believed in God. They used the same Bible at that stage, but they didn't see things eye to eye, and he felt that it was so offensive for someone to believe something other than what he believed that they have to be stopped, and forcefully, not just reasoned with, right? This is bad religion perfectly exemplified. But in Acts chapter 26, Paul's telling his story to King Agrippa, if you'd like to turn there. Acts chapter 26, beginning of verse 12. This is my favorite account of Paul's story. I think he tells it like three times in the book of Acts. But in Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 12, again, he's speaking to King Agrippa, kind of making his case. Acts 26, beginning of verse 12. He says, While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, a warrant of arrest, basically, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Is that what the text says? What does it say? He says, why do you persecute me? Well, wait a minute. Did Paul have a warrant for the arrest of Jesus in Damascus? Is that who he's going to arrest? No, no. 
But Jesus here seems to be identifying with the people who are being harmed by bad religion. Are you with me in this? He seems to identify with them that whatever you're doing to my people in the name of religion and harming them, you're actually doing to me, he says. That's good news, y'all. Can I say y'all in Southern California? Can I say that? Okay. (laughs) Um, This is really, really good news for us because this tells me, first of all, that Jesus has nothing to do with bad religion, right? He's hurt by it too. So when you've been hurt by bad religion, so has Jesus, just according from this first reading. But let's continue. He says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And again, he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And again, Jesus isn't the guy he's looking for. He's looking for X, Y, Z believer in Jesus. But Jesus says, when you do it to them, you're doing it to me. And the thing is, Saul is as sincere as the day is long. And most of the people that are causing the problems in our church are just that. They are so sincere. They want to do the right thing. They're zealous for God. They want to be helpful. But at times, the way in which they go about it pushes people away instead of draws them in. Yeah? They're not bad people. They're not trying to cause harm. It's just a misunderstanding of how to go about it. Does that make sense? The word tact may be missing from their vocabulary. Right? But they're sincere as a day is long. They want to do right. They want to honor God. And I want to make sure that that's clear. And so I said, who are you, Lord? He said, Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But then look at what Jesus says to him. He doesn't say, hey, guess what? I'm done with you. You've been a bad boy. I want to exile you somewhere else. You can't be used in my work. That's not what Jesus does with him. He says, but rise and stand on your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen, Jesus Christ himself, and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. People he didn't think were worthy of being saved before his conversion, he's now going to be used to save. And the amazing thing is, whenever he's employed by God to go and strengthen the churches that were dispersed because of the persecution of Stephen after Stephen, the very person who caused this persecution and spreading, Paul, ends up being their district pastor. He ends up growing and strengthening and training these very churches that were spread because of the persecution that he was leading. I think that's amazing that God had a plan for him. God did not view him as someone that was just bound to the chains of bad religion, never to be redeemed, never to be useful for the kingdom. Jesus didn't see him that way. He saw him for what he could be in Jesus. But that's really hard to think that way about people that are persecuting you, isn't it? It's very difficult to view them that way. But Jesus does, and Jesus can give you the faith of Jesus in them and for them. Does that make sense? That's good news. He doesn't treat us the way, he doesn't treat them the way that we would like to treat them. I'll just phrase it that way. And that's very good for the kingdom of heaven. Because we, we'd, we'd go to town on some folk, wouldn't we? But he continues. He says, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light. The same thing he's doing for Saul. And from the power of Satan to God. Why? That they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I think this is great news. I don't need to take the information we're going to cover this evening and go back to the elder of my church and just give them the business, right? I don't need to do that. In fact, well, let me, let me lose my slides. I'll run ahead of myself if I don't. I will say this. Jesus has nothing to do with bad religion. In fact, he was killed by it. The conservatives and the liberals did find one thing in common, their hatred for Jesus. And this is what allowed them to do their deeds. But 
here's the good news. We don't have to fall into that. We can be genuine, Christ-loving, people-loving Christians who don't do stuff like that. And even if people are a bad example, they too can be turned around. But just so you know this evening, if you've been hurt by people in religious settings, Jesus has nothing to do with that. Jesus actually is acquainted with your grief. He's gone through something very similar, and he identifies with you in being hurt. Good news. Very good news for us. Now, in Philippians chapter 3, he kind of gives some of his pedigree and some of his experience. Philippians 3, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, and beginning in verse 1. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And then look at the name that he uses for the bad religionists of his day. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law blameless. If there's anybody who could have been saved by what they did, it was me, he says. If anybody could, it was me. But what things were gained to me, these I've counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I've counted all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. It's literally animal excrement. Whatever I had to lose for going all in for Jesus was worth it. All of that stuff, it, it, it doesn't matter to me anymore, he says. Uh, why? So that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, so that I may know him intimately and the power of his resurrection to have a transformed life and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Sometimes bad religion creeps its ugly head because we just get really consumed with the stuff that we ought to be doing. And we ought to be doing them. Amen? Not downplaying that at all. But people are working through a process. Some people may not have the information that you have. Maybe their pastors haven't taught them these things. There's a process and a way in which you can invest in these people to lead them to the truth as it is in Jesus without downplaying standards but uplifting Jesus at the same time. Does that make sense? Sometimes we can err in this because what we see is errant behavior, but we don't really know what's going on in here, and we just kind of go in because they're not conforming to what we think they ought to look like on the outside. The problem is we have no idea what's happening here. We think we do, but we don't. Ellen White talks about the fact that you know the, you can have the corn and the, the stalk and then the ear. People are at different stages of development, but she says that they could be perfect at every stage of development. You know, a, a very small little sproutling is not capable of holding a full ear of corn yet, but it will. And every step of the way, the root structure is being developed so that it can. We're not downplaying character development. We're not downplaying growth. But people are on a process, and we don't fully know where necessarily. What we can do is show them Jesus. We can make those reforms attractive and palatable, and we can love and encourage them. Does that make sense? Where we don't downplay principle, but we also don't push the people out of our church. 
right, in the way in which we handle some of our situations. So anyway, I think there's good counsel here from Paul. But here's the issue. People are not rejecting Jesus because of who he is, right? You don't watch a documentary in the life of Jesus and just say, I, I just don't know about this guy, right? Everything about Jesus is immensely attractive and amazing. People are rejecting Jesus because of who he's portrayed to be by the people who claim to know him. And many of our young people are thinking, if this is what religion is about, I'm counting the days until I turn 18 and can get out of here. And I speak this from experience in going to 22 academies around this country. A lot of our young people are wrestling, a lot of them, with knowing, can I stay, can I not? Because they think God is the one who's doing this stuff, or at least that God endorses this treatment that they've received. He doesn't. It's good news. Very good news. So, this is a quote that's widely circulated about Mahatma Gandhi, that he says that, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now, to be fair, this quote is debated as to whether he actually said it this way or not, but I use it anyway because his life story vindicates this process nonetheless. He says, I'd be a Christian if it were not for the Christians. You know why? So, Mahatma Gandhi had heard about the teachings of Jesus, and they were immensely attractive to him. And he thought, I want to know more. And so he shows up to a church in India. And he had two bad experiences. One, he was living with Christians in South Africa. Not that all South Africans are bad Christians. I have good South African friends that are amazing and love Jesus. Just to make sure that's clear. But he stayed with some people, to the best of my recollection, in South Africa. Yeah, I think they're great people. And you should too. <laughs> Just saying. Good to see you, Di. And I uh, just want to make sure that's abundantly clear. I love South Africans. That's abundantly clear. But he stayed with some bad ones, right? Some bad Ventists, if you will. They weren't Adventists, but some bad Christians. And that was already kind of unappealing to him. But he was in a situation that he walks into the church and this elder makes a beeline for him and says, you are not welcome here because you're not white and you're not of our caste because they have a caste system in India. Well, how do you think this is going to go over? Someone hears about, just imagine, what if someone has God just speak to them in a theophany, right? Just this encounter with God in their car, and then they show up to church not knowing how to dress, not knowing what to do, but it's their first day there. Imagine if they get similar treatment, right? Scrutiny or something else. Yeah, they could fall in the same category as Gandhi, that I would have been a Christian were it not for the Christians, right? These people chased him out the door for even got to see the offering plate go by, right? This is not the way that God wants us to operate, Right? Just want to make sure that's abundantly clear. But bad religion is not this myth. It's happening, and all religions are dealing with it. Even our precious movement has folks who are well-intended but are hurting folks. Not intentionally, but it's happening. Jesus has nothing to do with it. I'm just going to keep saying that the whole night. Now, this is an interestingly relevant quote, particularly in this absurdly impolite society that I currently live in. We do not know how to communicate like Christians with fellow Christians on social media platforms and other places, and we should be ashamed of ourselves. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, people who engage in stuff like that. Stay away from that stuff. If you can't, if, if your religious experience causes you to lose your religion when talking about religion, it's not a religion worth having. You'll get it later. <laughs> but it's true. 
So I found this quote that is just absolute dynamite, and I love it. And I share this at academies. Listen to this. Someone else was frustrated with what they were seeing and the kind of this bickering going back and forth. Listen to what this person says. Nothing frightens me more than to see the spirit of variance manifested by our brethren. We are on dangerous ground when we cannot meet together like Christians and courteously examine controverted points. Listen to this. I feel like fleeing the place lest I receive the mold of those who cannot candidly investigate the doctrines of the Bible. Anyone else ever feel like that? Just want to walk out and leave? Right? You want to unfollow a whole bunch of people on your Facebook feed or just get rid of the whole thing? Throw your computer in the bathtub and call it quits? They continue. Those who cannot impartially examine evidences of a position that differs from theirs are not fit to teach in any department of God's cause. You know who said that? Ellen White. I want to give her a hug. Like right now. And, and continually. That lady swept me off my feet. Okay. So the dangers that we face as a church. This is a brief history of 1888. I am not an, a scholar on this. I would recommend a book. It's called Return of the Latter Rain, Volume 1 by Ron Duffield. An awesome treatise on what happened. It's just giving primary sources on the history of what took place, not secondary sources or historians' opinions, just reading what the people said. I thought he did a pretty objective job. Boom in history of this. I'm just going to give you an overview. We as a church were on the verge of having a Sunday law crisis upon us. In fact, it was happening in the United States government. Senator Blair was pushing and other departments were pushing for a Sunday law to be passed in the United States of America in the 1800s. And at this time that God was trying to prepare people to stand in the day of God, there were two things that he was doing as messages to prepare us. Some people who refer to the history only talk about one, but there's actually two, and I bet you you'll love this. Religious liberty was one that I don't hear as much talk about, but that we need. And the second is Christ our righteousness, righteousness by faith, right? Not liberalism, righteousness by faith, uplifting principle and uplifting the righteousness of Jesus. You can have both. You don't have to choose one or the other. You can actually have both, and it's really good news. So this is what was going on at this time. But the problem was going into the 1888 conference, there was this powder keg of politics that was kind of bubbling under the surface, and it was the Law and Galatians. One camp was believing that the Law and Galatians was the ceremonial law. The other camp was saying, hey, I think this also is involving the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And the division was so difficult between both parties that actually the General Conference president at the time says, do not listen to what they have to say. Like, stand by the way marks. Don't accept any new light at this conference. And Ellen White kind of saw that a storm was brewing, and she was begging people, writing through the review and other things, think for yourself. Do not be reflectors of men's thought. Make your own decision based upon the Word of God. Don't let people think for you. And it eventually just hit the fan. It was just a mess, right? The whole thing blew up because... They were just sure they were going to go into the Long Galatians, and they didn't really go into the Long Galatians, and they ended up kind of wanting to, to tone things down. The who's and the wins isn't really the issue. This is my point. The political hot topic of the day was the Long Galatians, and it kept our church in two camps. We're with them or we're with them. And don't read the stuff that they're writing. Don't support their ministry they, because they don't believe what we believe on, on the hot potato of the day politically. Now, are we in the midst of any real big dust-ups in the Seventh-day Adventist Church about a political topic, yes or no? Yes. Are we seeing our church divided into two camps over this issue, yes or no? My opinion doesn't matter. Here's the point. Because of this political hot topic of the day, 
It's causing us to be in a boxing match with each other while the world is erecting an image to the beast. And we need to be focusing on the two things that God was trying to do to make sure that we were ready whenever that happened. The message of Christ, our righteousness, and liberty of conscience. We shouldn't abandon either one of those messages. Both need to be central to our message and not in place of everything else that we believe, but they're all together. Does that make sense? There's a greater emphasis of this. This is what God wanted, and we need to be careful. Do not fall into one of these, I'm one of them or I'm one of them. To be honest with you, I don't really have a camp at this stage. I'm kind of frustrated with both parties because we, we're not able to have civil discourse. My principles fall on one side of the aisle, but I just wrestle because I see people that believe things that I believe acting very unchristlike in the way that they communicate with people that don't agree with them, and that concerns me. And I see people on this side of the aisle that are having communications that are very nasty with people that believe the stuff that I believe, and I don't like that either. I wish that we could meet together like Christians and impartially examine the truths of Scripture and choose to focus on missions so we can go home. That's my burden. That's my desire. I think God wants that. God wants a people to be ready to stand in the day of God, and Christ our righteousness and liberty of conscience have to do with that. Don't neglect these things and get caught up in this firestorm. Please stay focused on mission. Please, please, please. God's asking this of us. Now, I covered that. Good. John chapter 17 and verse 3. We're almost done. John chapter 17 and verse 3. This is what Jesus says when defining the term eternal life. John chapter 17 and verse 3. He says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. If we want to be able to stand in the day of God when the whole world falls apart around us, when the image is erected on the plain of Dura, if you will, we have to have a living, breathing, abiding connection to Jesus Christ and the Father. Something that is real, that is so rock solid that I don't care if my emotions fail me, if the people around me fail, you, fail me, I'm going to stand. Why? Because I know him. Even though I feel that God has abandoned me in my greatest time of need, I know him better than that. And he would never do that. This is what kept Jesus in Gethsemane through the cross, and it's what can keep you too. An intimate, abiding knowledge of the Father in His true character, and abiding with Him and connecting with Him daily, all throughout your day, growing and furthering this relationship. This is what we need. We desperately need this. Because apart from ourselves, we can do how much? You know who actually said that, by the way? He said, apart from, from God, I can do nothing. Jesus. I'm just saying, if he needed it, you better believe we need it, yeah? But this is my appeal to you tonight. Jesus is asking us to think for ourselves and to see for ourselves that he is good. Do not let men's opinions or men's bad behavior keep you from standing for Jesus. What they did is not right, right? If people have hurt you in the name of Jesus, it's not right, it's not good. Jesus himself was hurt, but you cannot on the day of judgment say, I didn't choose you because so-and-so was mean to me. Jesus is going to ask you, what did you do with the information at hand? And just because somebody may have been nasty does not deprive us or excuse us not investigating for ourselves whether he's good or not. Does that make sense? You still have to make your own decision. I can't take somebody else's oil. They can't take my oil. You have to have your own experience with Jesus. Amen? So don't let them deprive you of the beauties of communion with Jesus just because they were nasty, just because they had a bad day. Maybe they have a bad day every Sabbath of the year, right? Regardless, 
That does not excuse us from tasting and seeing for ourselves whether he's good. Are you with me? Jesus deserves at least that, right? At a bare minimum to just taste and see for yourself. What does the word of God say about Jesus? Jesus himself actually says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Some of us wrestle with these unhealthy pictures of God the Father because we can roll with Jesus. We saw what he did, but the Father is just a mystery to some of us. Like, he looks at me in the way that I look at me, like, like a disappointed parent. But what if God didn't look at you that way? What if God actually believes the very best things about you and wants you to be saved and will do whatever it takes to see you saved? The only way you're going to find that out is if you search the scriptures for yourself to see what he says. And the stuff that Jesus says about you in the Bible is awesome. It's amazing, it's inspiring, and it's good news, y'all. The gospel's meant to be good news. With a capital good, right? It's good news. So, I'm going to close with a story. I may get in trouble for this, but I hope not. So, I want to close with a story of someone I know who did not grow up in the Adventist church and actually grew up in a very violent uh, home, unfortunately. The violence was not so much exercised towards them as it was to mom. It was to him once and to his siblings, but mom put an end to that. But she took the brunt of it day in and day out and day in and day out and day in and day out. And Ty's experience was miserable. His view of what God was was just a monster in his mind because he allowed for this, he thought. Well, something changes in a moment. What happens is his mom pulls him aside one day. She can see how much this is weighing on him. He's just distant in school. He's disconnected. She can see this is really weighing on him. And I'm only telling this story because it's such a powerful example of bad religion. It's the perfect way to close this message, I think. And so mom sits Ty down, and she looks at him kind of eye to eye. They're very close to each other. And she has something in her hand. Now, Ty has always known and believed that all this chaos that's happening in the home is dad's fault. And dad is a monster. This has always been reality for Ty. And mom sits down and she says, Ty, I need to tell you something. She says, so-and-so is not your dad. And this is when those cartoon graphics of like car brakes screeching or like the record, right, when it stops, like, what do you mean so-and-so is not my dad? He's always been dad. What are you talking about? She says, no, 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 so-and-so is not your dad. And she turns around what she has in her hand, and it's a picture. And instead of a teenage boy, she says, Ty, so-and-so is not your dad. This is your dad. And I want you to know that he never hit me. He never said those things to me. He never did anything like this. And Ty, it's very important that you know that this is your real dad, not that monster. This is your real dad. We were teenagers, he didn't know what to do, he got freaked out when I got pregnant and he ran, but he never did anything like this. And it was a paradigm shift for him, because his whole reality was built upon the abusive relationship he had growing up, that this is my dad. But wait, this isn't dad? It changed everything. It opened the door for him to eventually be able to accept Jesus. And I want to make this abundantly clear this evening. The monsters who have hurt you in the name of religion and the picture of God that they've given to you, that's not your dad. This is your dad. And he would never do that to you. Never. And you need to know that this evening. Jesus doesn't work that way. God the Father does not work that way. Jesus says that God the Father is just like me. 
How did Jesus deal with broken, hurting people? Mercifully, lovingly, while never excusing sin. This is the picture of God the Father. And it's so important for us as believers to have a healthy picture of God. Because we're not going to stand in the day of judgment for someone that we really don't think believes in us and someone that we viewed as a monster. He's not a monster. He's the love of your life. He's everything that you've been looking for. And you're everything that he's been looking for. And I just want to make sure that that's abundantly clear today. So when I do this week of prayer on what if it's better, I have to start with this topic. Because if I'm going to start making appeals on behalf of Jesus tomorrow and in the afternoon, and you have horrific pictures of God in your mind, why would you want to respond to a God like that? Jesus has nothing to do with bad religion. Are you hearing me this evening? That's not him. That's not your dad. He'd never do that to you. He's always been there for you. And tomorrow we're actually going to cover the topic of the silence of God. What do you do whenever you feel that God isn't there for you? When you feel that the whole world is just falling apart around you and just God seems silent when you need him the most. We're going to deal with that tomorrow. And then tomorrow afternoon, how does God view me when I fail? What if I fail? Really just practical Christianity, important topics. But so many of our members and our young people have grotesque, grotesque pictures of God. They're hideous. And so we're, we're, we're sticking it out just because we feel like, I better, but we're not really wanting to stay in with all of our hearts. I think it is better. I'm fully convinced it is. I believe the Seventh-day Adventist Church has the most beautiful picture of God available to humanity. I'm fully convinced of that. I wouldn't be here if I wasn't. And I just want to walk through that with you this weekend and just kind of make sure that our compasses are set to true north on who God is. There are things that God expects, and I, if I had more time, I'd tell you those things too. But if I only get one shot with you guys, starting the school year, getting a chance to start right with Jesus, I want to make sure that your pictures of God are healthy and whole. That's my burden, okay? So I like to close with a word of prayer, and then we'll conclude for this evening. Lord Jesus, I am so thankful that the monster that's portrayed by other religions and by bad religionists, even in our own ranks, that's not the type of person that you are. And that even when we're hurt by bad religion, you understand, you're acquainted with our grief, and that you hurt too. You don't just watch us hurt, and you don't endorse them hurting us. You're hurt too, and we're grateful. We're thankful, and I'm so excited to unpack beautiful pictures of God over the course of this weekend. God, just bless us with your presence, with your peace. God, show us that not only are you beautiful, but every plan and expectation you have for us is for our good. We shouldn't run from conviction. We shouldn't run from principle or reforms. They're good news. They're for our good. You love us so much. And I just pray that that would be clear. God, protect every soul who's here this evening as they travel home. And I just pray that this thought would weigh heavy on their minds this evening. And I pray specifically that you would put a burden in our hearts to pray for those people who've heard us in the name of Jesus. The church was praying for Saul, and he had a face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus. This person can too. So I just ask right now, for anyone who's hurt people in this room in the name of religion, that you would forgive their sins that you would cover them with the blood of Jesus and that the spirit of Jesus would awaken them to the fact that they could be a champion for Christ if they would make a full surrender and see him face to face. Give them that gift so they can be used for good. 
I pray that you would heal the wounds in this room. And I pray that there are people who are bitter towards you, bitter towards your church because of the bad religion, that you would forgive our sins and cover them with the blood of Jesus and that you would set us free. Help us, O oh God, I pray. Prepare us to stand in the storm that is just upon us and may your will reign supreme above all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.